0: Barb Higgins here welcoming you to a thousand tiny steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody? Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode eighty of a thousand tiny steps. Whenever I get caught up in a number, you know, like an anniversary number or whatever, I always think of a guy named Chris Sullivan. He used to coach Trapper with me in Concord High years and years ago, and he always was like, "Why do we celebrate like increments of five? Like all high school unions are every five years. Why not every four years? Why not every seven years?" Like, and it's true, you know. I, you know, what's what's so much better about episode eighty than episode seventy nine? But eighty is just this round number. It's like I've finished 10 decades worth of podcast episodes. It makes me laugh. But anyway, this is episode 80, so welcome everybody. I'm knee deep into some pretty difficult parts of my life and stories to tell. I re-listen. and a couple of these episodes, I sound all frantic and frenetic and I'm talking really fast. And then last week's is much more thoughtful and sort of laid out and not quite as as frenetic. But it's hard. It's hard to retell a story that decimated you and really that you never dealt with. In any good way. We're in between two snowstorms here. It's March 2nd as I record this, which is the first day of the fast in the Baha'i faith. And so I'm not fasting obviously because I'm still nursing Jack, but it always is a 19 day period of time leading into spring where I'm always thinking about sort of healthy choices and bettering myself and trying to think outside of my own needs and things like this. (laughs) And deep into this part of my life from 2009 to well, 2005, actually, but 2009 to 2016, job loss to Molly lost. A big lesson is learning how to say no, but that doesn't mean that you can't live a life in service. One just has to be mindful on who they're offering their service to. So I finished up last time in the fall of 2011. and It was the first fall really in my life that I hadn't gone back to school, either as a student, that's 20 years. And then I had one year off, so I didn't go back to school. I was a cop helluages, and then I started teaching in Woburn in 1987. So from 1987 all the way until 2010, I went back to school. The fall of 2011 was a tricky one for me. Things were also extremely strained with Roy, although so much of the legal stuff and the fallout, both of the treatment of him and his divorce, even of me and my exit from the school district, kept us both very busy with sort of legal activities and things. So... (laughs) When I look back now on how did I spend all these years living this civil life, like how and why, I realized there was so much more to it than just some scandalous relationship. When I think of the best of Roy, I think that he loved me and that that he had some need to be with me and and wanted me in his life. And then at other times, I just think, you know, I don't know. And I know for me, it was a very panicky, please don't leave, please don't leave, please don't leave. And and there are times in my life I still feel that way. All these years later, you know, Molly's death separating. you know Roy and I spent a lot of time together reconnecting after Molly's death talking and meeting for dinner and spending time together. And no one knows about that. And it wasn't like, "Oh, let's restart this big love affair. At least he made it very clear that would never happen. I don't know that I would have done that either. I wanted Jack and I have Jack, and I was supposed to have Jack. I have this family. you know, Jack's dad is Kenny, and his sister is Gracie, and his mother is me. and whatever Jack's purpose is here, that's much more important than whatever, whatever trauma bond I might have with Roy. But I feel that I have to be transparent and honest in telling this story. I can't leave out parts that are difficult because then I'm just lying. And then I'm telling history with an agenda that defies truth, if that makes sense. One of my favorite conversations was with a history professor. And somebody asked him, you know, what do you think of stories people share, because history, every history book is somebody telling a story of what they remember of an event. And a history student, he's getting a PhD in history, said, it's not what they say, it's why they're telling it. Like, why are you telling the story? What's your motive? And so that's been very, very, very forefront in, in the process of this, because I do not want it to come across as something vindictive slaying of people. Everything I'm talking about, you can Google and read. I'm not giving any new information, except the nature of my relationship with Roy, which I was very unwilling to share with the Concord Monitor and write about in Patch and and all of that. This is my podcast and my voice that I can share what I want here, and people can listen or not listen. So that's the one piece of this story that you won't find if you Google it. Although the Monitor did a very good job of setting the stage for leading speculation among the citizens of Concord. The fall of 2011. I'm sad. I remember Robin? Right around the first day of school, right when I found out about my neighbors hating me and telling me that they wouldn't work with me in road races. It was just this bizarre thing. And Robin took me to smile yoga. And it was like laugh yoga. It was laugh yoga. And it was in this building called the smile building. And you just looked at each other and fake laugh. And then you actually, we laughed and laughed. Robin and I had no trouble laughing. In my last episode, I talked about meeting Robin sort of in the spring, almost summer of 2011. And then we didn't really connect or anything, but she did offer me a job. And so I went and started working at flips and they had just opened another part of their business called Jumps, and It was all these inflatables. So it's a blast. kids loved it. So they have this big gymnastics gym and a competitive gymnastics team and, you know, toddler programs and everything. So I started working there and I, I taught some baby classes. I went in the mornings with her and then she would always typically have to stay and do, you know, a lot of the cleaning and all that. And so by hiring me to do it, she could go and get other things done. That really is a family business. I had a lot of alone time there, and that was hard on me because I just thought I should be in the classroom. A year ago from now, I was in the classroom. Years ago from now, I thought I would teach for another twenty years, and so that was a difficult time. One of my biggest athletes, when I say biggest, the biggest, biggest in my life was a girl named Sky. She ran for me. She was an incredible athlete, and she was a track runner and she ran cross country. And she was just a big part of my life. I spent a lot of time with Sky, and after she graduated and I had lost my job, she you know, had some struggles in her collegiate choice and what to do next after high school and choosing good boyfriends that were healthy and relationships and living on her own. And so I spent a ton of time helping Skye, just answering the phone in the middle of the night or picking her up, you know, and helping her move out of an apartment, like all sorts of things. And I, I just, I was happy to do it because I loved her. She was one of my runners and Molly and Gracie loved her. She would always come over with a little gifts for them shortly sure. before Molly died. She came over with all these Vera Bradley pocketbooks and Wallace. Molly and Gracie were beside themselves. I'm at Flips and Sky texts me and says, do you want coffee? And I'm like, I would love coffee. So she brings me a cup of coffee and she comes into Flips and she's chatting away. And I introduce to Robin and Sky applies for a job. Robin needs some extra help. Would you like to work here? Sky said, yes. So, <laughs> so she starts working at Flips. So I have to say, as unhappy as my life was, jumping into working at Flips, VLAX as well. So now I have two streams of income, plus the road waste timing, plus the indoor track meet. So I would start the piece together, you know, seven days a week working, enough money to get our bills paid. Health insurance was, was a huge issue. We had none. Now, so we just stopped going to the doctor, the dentist for a while. She starts working at Flitz. And so the fall into the winter of 2011, 2012, in my day-to-day life was okay. It was manageable. The beautiful thing about flips is that Molly and Gracie could come and take classes there for free. And they had gymnastics classes. So a couple nights a week, they had dance. Another couple nights a week, they came to flips. I just look at those years and Gracie and I talk about it now. So, you know, they were like third and fifth grade, then fourth and sixth grade, then fifth and seventh, I think is when started to wean away from the gymnastics. And it was the first sign of Molly having something weird with her body because she started to have all this weird back pain. And back pain is a sign of cranial pressure issues which, you know, I didn't know at the time. So those years, 2011, 2012, 2013, the last part of 2011, I look back on with a big measure of happiness. I had this undercurrent, this undertone of anxiety and sadness and grief because I had lost a career that, that was important to me. And I, for some reason, I applied for jobs in a couple of other districts and was offered two jobs in different districts. And I said, no. And I had this fear of committing myself to another school district. And I, I regret that now because I do believe those little choices, so much of my motivation behind my choices was leaving myself flexible and open for Roy. Because if I were working full time again, I'm busy all the time, when would we ever see each other and he would leave me? It Sounds so needy and pathetic, but it was, it was just in the core of my being. I had lost everything. I was humiliated. I was a pariah in Concord. So the flips piece was incredibly helpful because I'm working with kids. The little kids love me and the parents love me. And most of the people I met didn't give two hoots about the school district. So it worked out fine. I had some positive things happening. And by the holiday season, so this would be Roy's and my third Christmas now, spending time together, things were better. I have some beautiful gifts and things that I bought for Gracie and Molly on my visits and just shopping downtown having dinner and going out for dinner at some of those restaurants. It was all walking distance from where he lived. And, you know, it was just, just beautiful. I'd been long enough out of the district now that, that I could sort of identify my life as my own. Roy and I also, our times together were much more planned out. He was still coming to New Hampshire to visit Morgan. Roy couldn't take her to his house yet. Like it was still visitation centers or coming to Concord and meeting at the visitation center and driving around. It was convenient because then we would he would work it so we would spend time together. I remember one time running with Skye actually. We were out running together and the visitation center was right there at the time and we're running by and a car drives in front of us and it was Amy. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then of course there's Roy's car there. And so we just quickly turned around and went back to the high school because I just didn't want to be accused of, you know, stalking or whatever. It was one of those horrible coincidences. That school year, 2011 2012, Roy still had enough reasons to be in Concord or around Concord that we could still see one another relatively easily up here. We'd go for dinner, or we'd go to a bed and breakfast or these kinds of things. We would just figure out ways to spend time together. And, you know, as romantic as a lot of our time together was, it was also a lot of time trying to hold the school district accountable for what they did to me and trying to hold the legal system, family court accountable for what Roy's divorce did to him. And so... Again, this is where I sort of felt like I was being helpful. We were looking into not letting other people get treated the way we did. I remember Roy wanted to write a book called Crazy Wives, Crazies, or something like that. And he had actually started it. But that's the level he was at. Like he was really, really just, you know, blown away by all that had happened to him. The house had sold, that I remember. And this was also a time that the abuse of me by Amy and Bob would continue. I can remember driving home from. Conquer Dance Academy once. It was probably 2012, maybe even 2013. But it's an example of what, what would happen. Roy would get an email from Bob, this nasty email, saying horrible things. Roy's mom passed away when he was when he was married to Amy. And Bob would say these terrible things about Roy's mother. Like she's dead. Good lord. Why would you insult somebody's passed away mother that's just classless? And there was one really nasty, nasty, threatening email. And in that email, he warned me to look out for myself. Tell your little girlfriend to look out for herself and her kids really, really scared me. It scared me unbelievably. I would get these threatening, you know, emails or the voicemail stopped, but Robert called Kenny at work. He just had this vicious, vicious, you know, anger at me that I could not, that I couldn't understand. And I couldn't understand what was fueling it. Obviously it was Amy fueling it. And and if I had to be, I had to be like all detective about it. Amy was very, very good at facilitating people to do things that she wanted them to do. And then she didn't have to take the blame. So we had the restraining order piece. She hadn't sent the emails to me. He had. The worst thing that he did, and this actually got me a restraining order as well as Roy. He was included in it because so much of it was against us. He wrote an article, like a nasty letter to the Puppet monitor, created a fake email. And he wrote this, this horror, something I would never say. It was just it. Had they printed it as coming from me, it would have humiliated me. It would have been very embarrassing and and caused me trouble in the school board. Fortunately, a reporter from the monitor reached out and said, hey, can you call me about the email you just sent? And I said, I didn't send an email. What are you talking about? She calls me and she supports me the email. And I said, no, my email address is this. This was not written by me. And so I hired a technically savvy person to search the IP address of this email. And the IP address came up. It pinged two towers. There were two emails both to Roy and to me from Robert, the IP addresses were the same. Both of those cell towers were within a half a mile of the business that Robert worked for. And so I had evidence. So when we would go to these restraining orders, typically Robert would stand up and just talk about everything bad I had done in my life. Like she's a liar and she cheats on people and you know nothing to do with him. He's just up there sort of slandering me as a human being. And so then when I gave, the evidence and said, look, the statute says, I fear for my safety, here's an email saying I need to watch out. And here's, he just sent a fake email to the newspaper, was granted a restraining order. All of these things happened between 2011 and say 2013, ongoing battle for me. So that was the hard side of my life. And that was the, the connection to Roy piece still. A lot of our connections were spending time at the courthouse, spending time at all these different places, you know, in all these different things, trying to get justice it was during this time that Roy went after Chris Rath. And I remember that guard quite a bit of press coverage. And he actually was allowed to question Chris Rath. And <laughs> he was upset that he didn't know ahead of time he could do it. And I was on the school board at this time, of course. Another board member, Cass Ardinger, went with Chris to this. I'm not sure why she went, but she did. Didn't need to be there. It had nothing to do with her. And they were livid, just furious. But here's the biggest thing was Roy it was a right to no request. He wanted all emails, that had his name in them my name in them related to the situation. And of course, when you had a right to no request, you have to produce the emails, you can't just say no. So she wanted to say no, so they go to court. So she tried to say the emails don't exist and they would have to be redacting all this stuff. And she had this, these boxes of paper. And so Roy was like, so you see the emails don't exist. Yes, what are those boxes there? Well, those are the emails, the ones that don't exist. And so of course he talked her right into a corner. So it was helpful in the sense that it was public and she got questioned. We did not end up getting the emails. Sometimes we felt very vindicated. He did a lot of work against his Amy's divorce lawyer, a lot of things that she had done, and she got into some trouble. She got some sanctions and some disciplinary actions from the Bar Association. Again, this isn't typically behavior of mine, like fighting to keep the buildings from being torn down and knowing when I should be like. A lot of my behaviors were just so, so driven by my desire to keep Roy and to make sure he would stay with me. And I have to be honest, he is a very addicting boyfriend or partner or whatever. He pulled you in and gets you all excited and he's good at it. And it's not a bad thing. He you know, can get you excited about good things as well. We kayaked and hiked and biked. We did a lot of things together. The number of bike rides we went on, two-minute account, and they were wonderful. My life post-school district employment wasn't all terrible. And the people that mattered to me reached out to help. I would teach you a class at Concordance Academy. I taught a couple of classes there. I would go months without paying money. And Cindy would say, what do you have? Can you just give me something every week? And so some weeks I could give her $30. Some weeks I could give her $130. Some weeks I could give her $10. But I went in and tried to give her something every week. I would time all these road races in the summer and catch up. (laughs) And then so I could start the next dance year without a debt. And it was difficult because Gracie and Molly were competitive dancers. There were competition fees. We didn't really increase the number of their dances until I started making a lot more money at VLAX. Through 2012, my relationship with Roy continued, as I've said, and I began to develop a much bigger presence at both Flitz and VLAPs. And so I was teaching a lot more students, making a lot more money, and that was a job I could do in my house. And so it was nice because I was still really humbled by and embarrassed by what had happened to me. And I was officiating indoor track meets. The hard part about that was I would see the pocket athletes. Now, when I did indoor track, we had like 60 people on the team, girls, just girls. Now they were back down to like 10 again. That part was hard because I knew that the kids were suffering. They, shame, they didn't need to. You know, Amy and Bob think they hurt me and they did, but they hurt so many athletes and runners and students that never got to have me as a teacher. But the officiating was fun and that was great money. It was cash money. I missed a ton of dance co though because it was weekends and I, you know, I didn't want to not make the money. I could make, you know, $350, $400 in a weekend, you know, and 10, 12 years ago, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money now. I didn't like to say no to that because it was a short period of time. and It was cash money. There were times that I would come home. You know, I remember one time, a big fight with Kenny. I came home from officiating a track meet and the dance competition was in Concord. I almost went straight there from officiating, but like, no, at home and pee and all this. Kenny's home watching a football game. And I'm like, why are not you go to the Capitol center? And he just, I just, I just don't think he thought, you know, I'm like, if it was a boy in a baseball game, he would be there. Like, why are you not what? So nobody's there watching our daughters and the competitions here. Like, that was a huge itchy for me. And I know now that Molly's gone, Kenny has a lot of regret around all of those dance comps that he blew off because they're now tedious after a while. You're just listening and watching and whatever. Social media wasn't on phones like it is now. So there wasn't so much to do at a dance comp. You had to bring something to read. So that was my life. I was balancing family life here. I was clinging, clinging sometimes to Roy. When I look now, when I look for like text conversations or I go back on Facebook now, I can't message Roy on messenger, but I can go back all the way back. And so I do that sometimes it's, it's hard though, because it's hard to read all that. And it was around 2012, 2013, that the tension was building. And so we would have fights and, and Roy is a big fan of some pretty horrifying words. The dirty C word is one of his favorites. And, and I can remember him using that word in anger against you know, Amy and other things in his life that happened. I remember the first time he used it against me and I'm like, did you just call me that word? Did you really just call me that word? And he was like, you know, shut the fuck up and go fuck yourself. And I don't know what the fight was about, but I know that it was, I'm not 0.9% sure it was that I was still here. And my main reason for staying here was these two little girls, I, I wanted them to have a life that wasn't traumatic. I didn't want to rip them from everything they knew, nor did I want to leave them because Kenny had gotten sick. So I'll get into that in a minute. He had been sick for a long time, but it was really, really amplifying. I just felt sort of trapped. Sometimes Roy was this one little happy sort of escape, and sometimes it was terrifying. And he would, you know, not speak to me for three or four days, and I'd be a basket case and a mess. And then often what would happen is I'd hear from him again, and I would be all upset and thinking we would have to talk it out. And he would act like nothing at all had happened, like hey. And I would just be like, oh my god. Oh my god. And he's like, why are you so upset? Calm down. You should know better by now, you know. And so there are times that that I, you know, to this day we don't speak, and I think, oh, if only I hadn't pleaded with him so much. He wouldn't have, you know, cut me off. You know, what is wrong with me that I even go there and think that, but, but that's how it is. And that pattern of behavior began way back then where please don't leave me, please don't leave me. And he would get upset with me. I will say I never made him promises that I couldn't keep. I never said someday I'll leave Kenny. I never said any of these things. Kenny and I did end up getting divorced. 2012 and then into 2013, we started getting very, very strained. And then we would have periods of time that we weren't strained. I talked before about a lot of the things that might be happening in his life that could affect how we work. And one of the times he was furloughed, he did a lot of work for his landlord and he was very busy doing a ton of stuff. It made him really happy because he does like to feel useful. And I know that when he does things that make people appreciative, it feeds his ego a bit. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, sometimes maybe, but he was super busy and super happy. And those, those would tend to be times that we are okay. The one major thing that was a change in my life in the fall of 2011, other than losing my job, running for school board, working at Flips, <laughs> is I started CrossFit. That's when I started CrossFit. And That goes back to Sky, my friend Sky, and she started working at Flips, and she was very fit, and she started talking about this new sport called CrossFit, and that, and her dad had joined the CrossFit gym, and I would love it because it's something different every day, and it's not running. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I really just blew it off. So Robin joined. So I would stay late on Wednesday. She would go off to the one o'clock class and I would stay. So she, all of a sudden, I just noticed this unbelievably massive change in her. Like she started in September and by late October, early November, I'm like, what is happening to you? And in those two months, like the neck thinner, the muscle, it was dramatic. So I'm like, all right, fine. I'll go watch a class. And so I went and watched a class. I sat on a big stack of tires in this nasty looking gym and I watched a class. And So the coach and owner at that time was John Farwell. And Brad though he wasn't there that day. And I said, All right, I want to join. Here's my credit card. And John looked at me like, Well, you need you have to do the training. You can't just join. And I'm like, I can do all of this. I was a Division I all-American. I was just so full of myself. He said, Okay, well, well, let's try a month and see what happens. The rest is history. I went the next day, and then I started going just three days a week. And it was life-changing for a million things. A, I had put a lot of weight. I weighed about 147. Like I'm 143 right now, and I feel pretty good about it. But back then, I I weighed 130 forever. You know, I just never gained weight. Even after having babies, I got back to 130, and that's when I weighed. I went from 147 to like 127, from November 17th to like January 6th or 7th. I remember people thought I would sit. I officiated track meets, and so I officiated a meet before Christmas. And then like two months later, these coaches from Kennett High School saw me, and they thought I was, they're like, oh my God, are you? What, are you sick? And I'm like, no, I joined a CrossFit gym, <laughs> but I lost weight really dramatically. But not only that, I found a community again. And that's what I had lost so much in losing my job is I lost my community. Crack practice, even as the coach, you have this group of people you see every day. You're a family, you create community in that, on that sports team. And in your classroom, you know, I'm a teacher, but you see those kids, you know, for nine straight weeks, I will see the same 100, 100 kids and then a new set. So it was this constant interaction and community. And so CrossFit became that in my life. I love that you show up, someone else decides your workout, they explain how to do it. They warm you up You do the workout in the home. It takes away all the thinking, you know, I have to go do this. I love going to CrossFit. So in my whole life was now CrossFit and Robin. So CrossFit, flips and Robin all the time. And then I would squeeze the v in around everything else, which wasn't difficult. I mean, you know, I had my VLAX days and my flips days. But it also brought Gracie and Molly into my life. The one majorly positive thing about losing my job is that I had unlimited time and opportunity to be with Gracie and Molly in their school activities. I just loved the fact that I could, I could be with them so much. And Gracie and I talk about that a lot too. i get really sad. and I'm, like, I'm getting out in my stomach now as I talk about it because i sorry, makes me Miss Molly. Oh, breathe, breathe, I'm sorry. Those times were just as stressful as it was, I thought the worst thing that could ever happen to me had happened. Then I lost my job, but I was okay. I was fit, I was in shape. I started competing in CrossFit competitions. I was successful. I had this thing and I had this friend. And Robin, I look at it now, and a lot of it's the same sort of love bombing and and idealization. We worked together all the time, all the time. We did social things on the weekends. We did sleepovers at flips. We had so much fun, we really did. I don't know that I would have been okay, for 2012 and 2013, if it weren't for Robin. I do remember a friend of mine, a dance mom, sending me a private message and just saying, just be careful because once she's sort of done, she'll change her mind, create a reason to hate you and never never talk to you again. And of course that was a very similar pattern to Roy, who, I mean, he doesn't talk to me now, it's been almost two years, but he would withdraw, like, I'm out of here. And then just not not answer his phone, not tell me where he was, unfriend me on Facebook, like this pattern of behavior. And that was sort of the punishment. If I was out of line, he would just disappear. So the thought that Robin might be this way weighed on me heavy. And so, of course, I went out of my way to just always be exactly what she wanted me to be. And it wasn't hard, quite honestly. She was really good at getting groups of people together. We had some of my funnest memories, some of my happiest Facebook posts are from time spent with her. And the hard part, I guess, too, in having these people in your life, like so much of my history with Roy was on Facebook. And he went back and erased everything. I do know that Facebook data is forever. Even if you erase it, it's not erased. I could buy my Facebook data all the way back to when I joined Facebook. And there's a part of me that would love to do that just because to just be sort of cut off like that and just disappear. I have jobs that are getting better. I have tons of time with Gracie and Molly. I have a relationship with Roy that as drama-filled and up and down as it is, has developed consistency and a bit of predictability. I have this sport that isn't running that brings me as much joy, if not more than running ever did. So all of these things were good. So the remaining piece was Kenny. And so we still had some significant financial issues that were mind boggling and could have decimated us. It was in 2013 that we split up the bills and we did what we could. And he he was in charge of the mortgage and and his kids were in college and he started paying college instead of the mortgage. And that was his thing to take care of. That was it. That was his one payment. And then I had to pay everything else. and. So all of a sudden I open the newspaper and there's a picture of our house and it says public auction Sunday. And this was like Wednesday. So I take the newspaper to Kenny and I'm like, what the heck? He goes, oh, don't worry. I'll talk to them. And I'm like, Kenny, there's no, there's no talking. The only way out of this is that we pay off what we owe. What do we owe? So we owed like $13,000. We had no money. So I thought Facebook, my Jeep is for sale. Tell me what you'll give me. I just was trying to raise this money. So I have two people in my life, my friend, Jack, and, and my sister, Martha who lent me the money. There was no electronic payments either. I had to mail it, like overnight mail it. And it was like a Friday. And it was, I was just, oh my God, I was just horrified. It was the most horrible thing ever. And so obviously we didn't lose the house, but this was one of the things that kept me here is that I knew that if I left, all of this would disappear. And, and maybe it's just a house and a match could burn it to the ground, but it's Gracie and Molly's home. And it was what I wanted for them. I had such a traumatic childhood. I didn't want theirs to be traumatic. And I was doing all these things that were, to bring trauma in you know by getting involved with his family and staying connected to Roy. the other piece of kenny's and he was not well he got very sick so i was at Concord dance academy one night and my phone rings and it's katie his oldest daughter and so i realized why is she calling me so she says that she's at the hospital she had taken him to the er so what happened is kenny came home and he wasn't okay his kidneys were in rough shape and he came home and he went lay down in bed and my mother was downstairs with the girls and he was calling her for help help, help. Sharon, help and she slammed the door saying, don't wake up your daddy, he's sleeping. So now he's upstairs and he's in so much pain, he can't move. So he called me and I remember looking at the phone and thinking, he knows I'm teaching. So I didn't answer, which I felt terrible about after. But then Katie calls and I realized something's not right. And so he was hospitalized. His kidneys were so dry and his kidney function was so poor that he was really hours away from likely dying. So he had quite a long hospital stay. So I was in a panic because we have no health insurance. So the girls were at school the next day. I, I went through all of our paperwork. I organized our banks. I just organized all of our finances into this nice, neat bin. Because I needed something to do when I was just freaking out. Just didn't know what to do. And so I went to, we went back to the hospital. And Concord Hospital has this amazing financial assistance program. And that became our health insurance. Concord Hospital Financial Assistance. As long as we used a Concord Hospital practice, it was paid. I mean, there was some co-pays and things, but it was insurance. So Penny's entire... Hospital stay, four days, paid for. I have never been so relieved in my life. And at that time, the Concord hospital, the liaison there said that I should apply for Medicaid. So we did, I applied for Medicaid for all of us. And so we had food stamps, you know, an EBT card and health insurance, plus the Concord hospital financial assistance. So for the next, you know, really up until Molly died, we had that insurance, but the medical insurance piece, especially for Gracie and Molly covered completely. Kenny's kidney disease qualified him for a lot of kidney foundation help and Medicare or disability rather. At that time as well, right around 2013, he applied for disability. So I had this stable life and then all of the explosions of job loss and public humiliation and everything else. And Kenny being sick. In all of that trauma, and all of that craziness, some really positive things occurred. All this time with my girls, which, which I love. I'll end here. That was, you know, 2011 to all of 2012. And 2013, into sort of the fall of 2013, I became very, very stable and situated in spending a lot of time with Robin, working at Flips, working at VLAX, getting an increasing number of students at VLAX, timing road races, officiating track meets. I had put together a life for myself that paid for everything I did. I also was a competitive tap dancer. It was another way to spend time with Gracie and Molly. And I'm not quite sure why I gave that up, but I did. And I really regretted it because it could have been helpful through the years right after Molly died, just maintaining that connection with Concord Dance. Sort of the, the momentum from all the things that happened that connected Roy and I together, Amy and Bob and the divorce, and then the job loss and Chris Rath and all of that and the legal stuff, it really bound us together and it gave us a focus and sort of a reason to stay together, even though the logistics of the relationship weren't good. You know, and and it wasn't good. It was wonderful. Let me just be clear. You know, it's hard for me to say that because I married Kenny thinking he was the love of my life. The whirlwind of things that led me into this reality. I think a lot in the car. I drive a lot right now. Jack is asleep. Sometimes I listen to music or a podcast, and sometimes I just think, and I just think, how did that happen? Like, how did it happen? How did I go from A to Q? It's so quickly. So, anyway, thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. I'm doing a lot of Facebook lives now, especially through the month of March. 1% habit changes each day or 1% change in a habit. So I'm on day two. This is the month of March for me. So day one is reflective prayerful moments, you know, a handful a day. I'm not going to make myself do a number. Just do it. Just introduce. That's a Baha'i one word prayer. So that, and then my 1% change for today is water. Just drink more water. Like when I walk by a faucet, drink of water. So I have little cups all around my house and water bottles full of water stashed everywhere. So I'm never in a room without a water bottle. So as always, be good to yourself. Choose a 1% change in your life that could have a thousand percent positive effect. Be good to someone else. Small favors sometimes also give the biggest hugs. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444. On Facebook as Barb Higgins and at my website, a_thousand_tiny_steps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.